to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. It is a pleasure to welcome back an old friend of the show, author Galen White, whose brand new book is entitled Singles and Smiles, How Artie Wilson Broke Baseball's Color Barrier. And Galen, thanks for joining us. But you know, when we hear that title, our immediate reaction is, hey, wait, didn't Jackie Robinson break baseball's color barrier? Which begs the question, who is Artie Wilson? Greatest shortstop nobody heard of. Artie was a contemporary of Jackie Robinson. In fact, they both were all-stars in 1945 in the Negro Leagues. Jackie was with the Monarchs. Artie was with the Birmingham Black Barons. Artie had been recommended to Branch Rickey as uh, the one to break the color barrier by several Negro League owners. Uh, Branch Rickey, of course, selected Jackie. And Artie would later say that Jackie was the best choice, but he was the better shortstop. Artie was a five-time Negro League All-Star. His 376 lifetime batting average in the Negro Leagues is third highest. He was the last 400 hitter. He hit 402 for the Birmingham Black Barons in 1948. And by the way, that happened to be Willie Mays' rookie year in pro ball. Yeah, last player to hit 400 uh, of, uh, I guess, in the professional leagues. He he did that in, uh, was it the Pacific Coast League? His first year in the Coast League, uh, 1949, he led the league in hitting with a 348 average. He also led the league in stolen bases. He went on to uh, finish second in the Coast League uh, twice in hitting and then also third on another occasion. So he was always at the top uh, in hitting in whatever league he played in. I wanted to ask about what you just said there about Jackie Robinson previously. You said that Artie even felt that he was the best choice. Well, why was that? Because Jackie had experience mingling with white people. He'd played uh, sports at UCLA. He'd been in the military. Artie grew up in Birmingham. He had played against white players on barnstorming tours. He was part of, uh, later on in 19, I think it was 1940. Six Satchel Page and, and Bob Feller did this national tour uh, from the East Coast to the West Coast, and Artie was the shortstop on that Satchel Page team. And prior to that, he had been on uh, all-star uh, Black Baron teams that played against uh, white players in the coast. So he had some experience with white players, but not nearly as much as Jackie. And that's the reason he thought Jackie was the best choice. What kind of method did he use to combat racism? Was it Was it a little bit different than the way Jackie did it? Yes, entirely different. Uh, Jackie, as most people know, was a fiery player himself. He a uh, sort of a fire and brim, brimstone type, you might say. Uh, very, very competitive. And uh, Artie was also very competitive. But Artie's um, uh, whole approach was sort of, I'm going to respect the other guy. I'm going to treat him uh, with the kind of respect I want to be treated with. And uh, he wasn't compliant. But he wasn't nearly as combative as Jackie. Uh, basically, uh, Artie's approach was uh, to do what he did best, and that was hit singles. And then, of course, after the singles, he would flash his winning smile. And, of course, he was usually smiling anyway, so the smile just got a little bigger after a base hit. But Singles and Smiles, which is the title of the book, is sort of, uh, was sort of Artie's recipe for dealing with racism. There's a story I tell in the book about when he joined the Coast League in 1949, one of his biggest detractors was a fan in Sacramento. And this fan called him the N-word and all sorts of names that some already had never heard of before. 
also yelled at pitchers to throw at Artie. By the time Artie's career uh, ended in 1957, it so happened it ended in Sacramento. This fan was his biggest booster and, in fact, organized Artie Wilson Appreciation Night at the end of the season. So that kind of shows the effect that Artie had on fans and on players. He just won them over. He was this uh, one one, uh, of his teammates described him as this great uh, in-between guy between blacks and whites. He just kind of went right down the middle. Jackie, by the way, he had some problems with some of his black teammates because uh, some of them thought, uh, well, he was doing, did some things that they really didn't care for. For example, in St. Louis, uh, Jackie uh, uh, fought to have the black players stay at the same hotel that their white teammates stayed at. Well, several of his black teammates preferred to stay in the black part of St. Louis. That way, of course, they didn't have the scrutiny of uh, the managers and everybody else, and they could be to themselves. So Artie Artie, uh, just sort of, he caught that middle ground, and he also did so with an optimism that was contagious. That's exactly what I wanted to ask you about next, because that that smile that he had on his face, the optimism, his demeanor, uh, was something that he said his appreciation came from how he grew up. You know, he, he wasn't he wasn't wealthy at all, didn't have a, a ton. And Galen, you explained in the book, and I'd like you to explain, you know, what he did when his shoes got old and, and what he used for a baseball and a bat when he was, he was playing as a kid. Well, he, he uh, often made his own baseballs. If he didn't have a bat, he'd make his own bat. He, uh, with what little money he had, he bought a baseball glove. I believe the cost was $2.98. He carried it around hooked it up to his belt buckle. He was all, always ready to play baseball. He loved the game. His mother uh, raised him. He only saw his father once. So the, st- the phrase, uh, wouldn't know your father if he walked into the room, that was literally true with Artie. On one occasion as an adult, he met his father and did not know who he was. His mother unfortunately died when she was 40, but Artie, uh, Artie learned a lot from his mother. His mother taught him one thing, and that was, don't let names bother you. Whatever people call you, just don't let it bother you. And Artie's philosophy about fans, whatever they called him, was they're paying my salary. So he just went ahead, went about his business. The playing field for Artie was level. By that, I mean it didn't matter whether the pitcher was black and white, whether he was a knuckleballer or a fireballer like Bob Feller. Uh, he felt that with a bat in his hand, he was in control. And he leveled the playing field with that bat. He was also a great fielder, by the way, but he, he loved to hit the most. And so when he was at the bat and whoever he was facing, he was equal, he thought, to any pitcher out there. Yeah, you describe in the book, I love this story, how when his shoes would get old, he'd get holes in his shoes, he would get a piece of cardboard and basically outline it, put the cardboard in his shoes uh, to, to, to make the shoes last longer. Um, you know, that's how... Uh, they, that's how well off they were at that time uh, in his childhood. And then, you know, he goes uh, to the uh, major leagues for basically a cup of coffee. I mean, he, he was first, uh, you describe how the, the Indians and Bill Beck and the Yankees were kind of battling for him, but he ends up with the Giants. But after he finally gets there, what happens? You, you, that's the most incredible thing. He knew Willie Mays. That, that's part of the story. And, and maybe there's no uh, Willie Mays when Willie Mays came up if it wasn't for Artie, right? He knew Willie Mays better than any of the Giants did. Of course, the Giants scouts have been following Willie for a while, but Artie played an entire season with him, 1948, his uh, Willie's first year in pro ball. Piper Davis was the player manager of that team, and Piper uh, played second base. Artie played shortstop. 
and Piper and Artie uh, went all the way back to the Birmingham Industrial League. So Piper was the most instrumental person on that team. But every veteran on that team sort of took Willie under his wing, under their uh, under his personal wing. And uh, Artie was the same as as Piper. He helped Willie whenever he could. So when Artie got to the majors in 1951, at spring training, he led the Giants in hitting with a 480 batting average. He was so impressive that Leo on several occasions, Leo DeRozier, the manager, was quoted on several occasions as saying that uh, Artie was the best utility man in the league, that he was better than most of the other shortstops in the league. And Artie felt in his own mind he was as good as the starting shortstop Alvin Dark and as good as the second baseman Eddie Stanky. But they were entrenched. They were very experienced uh, players, and Artie knew he wasn't going to displace them. When the season started, he started on, uh, he only he started one game. Uh, the rest of the time, he, he uh, was in as a substitute for either Stinky or Alvin Dark. He played uh, one game at first base. Uh, he had a total of 22 at-bats, four hits. Meanwhile, the Giants are struggling. They got off to a horrible start. The columnist for the, for the New York Times, Arthur Daly, said it was going to take a miracle for the Giants to win the pennant. They had this center fielder in, in Minneapolis hitting 477, 100 points higher than his closest competitor. Of course, that center fielder was Willie Mays. Uh, Artie went to Leo DeRosier and said, Leo, uh, I want to play every day. I make more money in the minors uh, uh, in Oakland than I do here in the majors, and you need a center fielder. Bring Willie up, send me down. That's essentially what happened. They traded places, Artie eventually winding up back in Oakland, and Willie, of course, with the Giants. I'd like to point out that when Willie first came up, in his first 21 at-bats, he had one hit. So imagine if uh, Willie had been on the same short leash as Artie. We not, might not have heard of Willie Mays today. Of course, Willie was 20 years old when he went up to the Giants. Artie was 30. That was a big difference, too. But Artie, Artie Wilson wanted to play every day. He knew his ability was such that he could play with the big boys if he was given a chance to play. But sitting on the bench, he never felt he could do his best. Yeah, it's hard to believe there was more money in, in, in the minors than there was with him playing for the Giants, right? The Coast League was more major league than the majors in many respects. They were traveling by air in the Coast League at that time. They were staying at first-class hotels. Of course, the cities in the Coast League were San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego, Portland, Seattle, and Sacramento. Oakland was also, of course, in the league. Um, these were uh, the mild-weather cities, so a, a veteran player uh, wanted to play on the West Coast more in the majors, particularly if he wasn't going to be starting in the majors. He would prefer to be on the West Coast, make more money. They usually made more money. And, of course, they were traveling first-class wherever they went and traveling by air. Name some of the guys that he played with and for, because it, it's a great list of, of guys. For example, his roommate with the Oakland Oaks was a name I know every baseball fan knows. Billy Martin uh, agreed to room with Artie when he joined the Oaks in 1949. Artie was the first black player in Oakland and, and the only black on the team to begin the season. Uh, Artie joined them six weeks into the season, by the way. By the end of the season, uh, uh, the, the Oaks had two other black players. And there was a third one that Artie wanted to bring on, and that was Willie Mays. What happened was Artie uh, was best friends with Willie's father, Cat Mays. And Cat wanted uh, Artie to take Willie to the West Coast with him, uh, the latter part of the 49th season. Willie was still in high school, so legally 
he couldn't play pro ball unless he um, he had a legal guardian with him on that team. So Cat Mays was willing for Artie to become Willie's legal guardian. He did not join him in 49, in, uh, going into spring training in 1950. Again, uh, Artie uh, went to the Oaks management and to manager Charlie Dressen and said, we, get, we got a chance to get this great player, better even than Jackie Jensen, who, by the way, played with the 49 Oaks and uh, went on to play with the Yankees and the Red Sox. And the Oaks did not um, act on uh, Artie and Cat's offer. So as a result, in 1950, it was that uh, the Giants wound up signing Willie Mays. I asked Artie what would have happened if he had been successful in taking Willie to the West Coast with him. And his response to that was he probably would have wound up with the Yankees because the Oaks had this pipeline with the Yankees. They weren't officially affiliated with the Yankees, but they had this pipeline where Billy Martin, who was their second base in 49, wound up with the Yankees in 1950. And Jackie Jensen, who signed with the Oaks in 49, wound up with the Yankees in 1950. Speaking of the uh, Yankees, uh, can you go over again that what you described in the story, in fact, devote a chapter to it, and it kind of almost foreshadows some of baseball's kind of future labor management battles almost, it, with, with Artie Wilson being the center of that controversy again with the uh, Cleveland Indians, uh, uh, Bill Beck, and w- with the New York Yankees. What's ironic is that Artie was one of the most mellow, easygoing guys you would ever see, and yet he got caught in the middle of two separate battles. And the first one I'll describe, of course, is the one that you reference. And that's the one between Bill Veck of the Indians and George Weiss of the Yankees. They hated each other. The Indians won the World Series in 1948, uh, dethroning, uh, uh, keeping the Yankees from uh, doing what they typically did every year. And so things just sort of heated up in 1949. Artie was in Puerto Rico, uh, had... Uh, was a player manager for Mayaguez, led them to their first uh, championship in in a decade. Uh, a first baseman for that team was Big Luke Easter. Bill Veck flew to Puerto Rico and signed both Luke Easter and Artie Wilson. The Yankees, meanwhile, had 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 a scout in Puerto Rico who had met with Artie, had discussed the uh, possibility of signing him, but there was no agreement reached uh, with Artie by the Yankees. What the Yankees did instead was they uh, uh, made a deal, they thought, with the owner of the Birmingham Black Barons. But the owner, Tom Hayes, later said, look, they they didn't pay me any. There was no money transaction. There was no papers signed. They offered Artie $250 less than what he was making with the Black Barons. So obviously, Artie turned it down. The whole issue went before the commissioner of baseball, Happy Chandler. Uh, he decided in mid-May 1949 that uh, Artie belonged to the Yankees instead of the Indians. Artie had gone to spring training with the Indians, uh, had was third in the team in, in hitting for the spring, hit 417, uh, started the 49 season with the uh, San Diego Padres, who were a Indians farm club. He and Luke Easter played together there in San Diego to start the 49 season. And then once the ruling came down, of course, the Padres had to unload Artie, and uh, the Yankees uh, ha- had his uh, rights to his contract. The Yankees had no plans for him. They had Phil Rizzuto at shortstop, so instead they make a deal with the Oaks, sending Artie there. The feeling is, at least it was reported at that time, 
that it was sort of a down payment on uh, the Yankees getting Billy Martin for the next season. Interesting. I also I wanted to ask you about the uh, when he was with the Oakland Oaks. There was the Artie Wilson shift, and we we hear today so much about defensive shifts in baseball, and that's something new with the analytics-minded front offices. But here, gosh, way back in the what early 1950s, they were already employing defensive shifts in baseball. So that's something that just didn't come along today. The most famous shift, of course, is the Ted Williams shift. That right. was the first one. Lou Boudreaux pulled that on Ted Williams. And Ted, left-handed here, the defense shifted to the right side because he was a pole hitter. Artie was a left-handed hitter as well. But he hit to the wrong field. He always hit the left field, seldom hit the right. Already liked the pitches on the outside of the play. He liked to go the wrong way. He was a master with the bat. Earlier in the year, you heard about uh, Brandon Belt uh, in his 21-pitch at bat. Well, that was fairly normal for Artie. In an in a u- average game, he would foul off between 20 and 25 pitches. Willie Mays recalled in an interview I did with him, that already in one game in Birmingham fouled off 15 pitches in one at bat. So he was very adept at fouling off pitches. That was part of what he was uh, uh, urged to do by his manager in Oakland, Charlie Dressen, was to wear down the opposing pitcher. So already always hit the left. The, the defense would shift dramatically to left, on occasion leaving right field entirely open. The right fielder would come in and play second base. Artie, on occasion, would go to right field and take advantage of that. And if he did, of course, it was either a triple or a home run with his great speed. I referred earlier to he got caught in the middle of two different uh, tug-of-wars, you might say. The first between Bill Veck of the Indians and George Weiss of the Yankees. In the majors, uh, he got caught between Leo DeRozier, the manager of the Giants, who he played for at the time, and Charlie Dressen, his old manager with the Oaks, but now the manager with the Dodgers. Well, Dressen, of course, knew how uh, Artie always went to left field. So at the one time that Artie batted against the Dodgers, Dressen made a big deal out of it. He stepped out of the dugout and, like a traffic cop, moved all the the players to where he wanted them. He brought Carl Ferrello in from right field, put him at second base. Jackie Robinson, who was playing second, he moved him over to short. Pee Wee Reese, he moved over close to third base. The third baseman was right on the line. And the left fielder and the center fielder were bunched up over in left field. And, of course, uh, nobody in New York had ever seen. uh, This was at the polo grounds. It was early in the season. Nobody had ever seen anything like this. The Dodgers were were well ahead at the time. Don Newcomb was pitching. Leo DeRozier was yelling at Charlie Dressen. Dressen, of course, uh, saw this as a chance to upstage his former boss, Leo DeRozier. And so... uh, uh, what happened was, after fouling off a few pitches, Artie wound up uh, bouncing back to Newcomb, and he was thrown out. Um, this became a, a big deal. Shortly after that, of course, the, the Giants went into a slump, but shortly after, they sort of rallied the Giant players. Uh, it made them all the more determined to beat the Dodgers, and um, it, it um, was sort of that rallying call. And the one thing where Carl Erskine, who I interviewed for the book, said that he thought in the end there were a couple things that Charlie Dressen did that sort of uh, uh, was a catalyst for the Giants. And one of them was this uh, uh, shift that he pulled on Artie. And another one was after the Dodgers had beaten the uh, Giants for the umpteenth time early in the 1951 season, he had a group of the Dodger players go 
near the uh, Giants clubhouse there at the uh, Ebbets Field and sing through the door. And, of course, uh, that uh, didn't go over well with Leo either. So these two uh, battles that Artie was in the middle of sort of defined his major league career, and that's unfortunate because these battles sort of did the service to Artie and took the focus off of what his true abilities were. Yeah, he overcame that. He overcomes the racism. He overcomes uh, poverty, everything else. And we buried one of the big things that he overcomes because Galen, he, he lost a piece of his right thumb when he was a kid, right? In a machine shop accident in uh, 1939, he was uh, just about 19 years old. And uh, he cut off the top part of his right thumb. That's on his uh, throwing hand. He bounced right back. He got a little rubber ball, started to build up uh, that hand. He adjusted his uh, throw from shortstop uh, from a straight overhand to a, more of a three-quarters. And, of course, he just adjusted how he held the bat. It, it didn't affect him. Uh, in the Negro Leagues, he played the first year with the Black Barons. They had a second baseman named Tommy Sampson. Samson had lost an index finger in a rail in a coal car accident. And so the fans, uh, they were a pretty fancy fielding uh, double play combination. And when Artie and Samson would pull a double play, the crowd would uh, celebrate by yelling, nub the nub, nub the nub. <laughs> yeah, I love, I love that story. And, you know, you talk about somebody that everybody seemed to like, you know, from the, reading it in the book because of his demeanor and everything like that. And it wasn't just players. I mean, this was a guy that, uh, he had fans among the Hollywood celebrities and sports giants, didn't he? Well, George Raft was a big fan uh, of Artie Wilson's. He uh, would uh, George Raft, the actor who was best known for the gangster films. George was a Hollywood stars fan, but when Artie would come to town with uh, one of the opposing teams, uh, he played for Seattle, Portland, and Oakland during this period of time, as well as Sacramento. Uh, George would always yell. Uh, they're bunching up on you, Artie. They're bunching up on you. Of course, Artie knew that, and, and Artie would yell back, I'll get him, I'll get him, and of course, he usually did. He did particularly well against the Hollywood Stars. In fact, his nickname among the Stars players was Houdini, and that was because he was so good at placing his hits among the bunched-up defense that he was like that uh, famous escape artist Houdini. Uh, another of his big fans was Joe Lewis. Whenever Joe Lewis, uh, the heavyweight boxing champion of the world, was in town uh, and Artie was playing, Joe always went to see uh, Artie play. Another of his big fans was the jazz great Lionel Hampton. In fact, Lionel Hampton uh, performed, his band performed at Artie's uh, 40th wedding anniversary celebration in Portland. What about uh, him as a personality himself? I mean, he dressed a little bit interesting. Uh, it's interesting also, you said, because he, he was a, uh, a big Christian, but he liked his cigars as well, right? He loved his cigars. He always had one in hand. There's a, there's a classic photograph of the Satchel Page All-Stars, and you'll see Artie in, in a uh, dapper white coat holding a cigar. There's another photograph in the book where a bunch of kids are surrounding him for autographs. He was great with kids. He treated them like adults, carried on uh, adult-like conversations with them. And uh, there was one uh, kid who uh, he asked to hold his cigar once. And this kid went on to become a uh, Topps baseball card photographer. His name is Doug McWilliams. And Doug uh, uh, became a big Artie Wilson fan. He, he, would, he said that throughout his life, whenever he smelled a cigar, he thought of Artie Wilson. 
What's interesting is late in life, of course, Doug was sending a lot of things to Artie, and Artie would sign them and send them back. Artie sent Doug a cigar tin autographed. Fantastic. Uh, I mean, this is somebody also that you read the book, and, and there's no doubt when Artie tells you, he, he just didn't have any regrets. I mean, this is somebody that should have maybe had some regrets, but uh, Galen, you said he did, he just never did. You know, you'd ask him about it and he didn't. Uh, yes, I asked him about it. And his uh, answer to that question was that he had no regrets in terms of his career. The one regret he had had nothing to do with him, had to do with Josh Gibson. He considered Josh Gibson the greatest hitter ever to step to the plate and regretted that Josh Gibson never got a chance to play in the big leagues. One of the things I've left out is that Artie not only was a great hitter, he was a great fielder. Uh, his nickname in the Negro Leagues, one of them, was Octopus. That was because he played shortstop like he had eight arms. He got to pretty much everything. Orlando Cepeda, who I interviewed for the book, uh, Artie Wilson was uh, one of his heroes in uh, Puerto Rico. Artie played seven uh, seasons in Puerto Rico during the winter. And there he was known as Ground Sweeper because of, again, uh, his covering so much ground and anything that he got close to, he, he would uh, uh, get and, of course, throw the guy out. So uh, he was a great defensive player. He was a great guy in the locker room. Umpires loved him. I mean, when you talk about everybody loving him, uh, he never got kicked out of a game. His whole philosophy of that was, I can't do a team any good sitting on the bench. He wanted to be on the field. You know, Ernie Banks is famous for saying, let's play two. Artie could have said, let's play five. And by that, I mean, he played he played in a double hitter in Birmingham uh, on a Sunday. The next day, which was Labor Day, uh, he played in two games in Memphis. That night, they had a single game in Jackson, Mississippi. The team traveled in their uniforms by bus 200 miles to Jackson. They played a game that night. It was five games in 36 hours. Artie loved baseball. He would play any chance he got, whether he was a kid or as an adult. In fact, Eddie Basinski, his teammate in Portland, tells the story how on their off day, Artie would call some of the team, some of his teammates and say, let's go down to the ballpark and play pepper. So he just had this love for the game, and he loved to talk baseball. And then later on, he became a, a car salesman. He was a very successful car salesman, I might add. He was active up until age 85. He lived to be 90. He was still selling cars at age 85, and the way he sold cars was talking baseball. Now, one other thing I might point out, too, is that Artie retired in 1957, but in 1962, uh, he uh, was, of course, selling cars, and he often went to the ballpark to pitch batting practice, stay in shape. He went there uh, uh, just before uh, July 4th. The Beavers were in town, Portland Beavers, and they had a series of double hitters coming up. The manager, Les Peden, uh, the, the team was uh, in need of healthy bodies because uh, several players were hurt. So he goes to Artie, who show, shows up to pitch batting practice, and said, we're going to sign you to a contract. And so they did, and Artie played for a month with the Beavers, not having played in five years, played 19 games at second base, never made an error. Then uh, uh, when the Beavers got healthy, Artie went back to selling cars. A couple of weeks later, he gets another telephone call. This is from his old manager at Sacramento, Tommy Heath. Tommy says, Artie, we've got several injuries down here. At uh, This was in the Tri-Cities area of Washington. 
He says, we've got several players out. Uh, we need your help. So Artie went and played two more weeks to finish the season for the Tri-City Braves. I know Artie had no regrets. I guess the one regret that we've got is we didn't get a chance to, to see him play and, and to get to know Artie himself for, for a lot of us. Uh, we've had you on before, Galen, the book, uh, The Bilko Athletic Club, about the Babe Ruth of minor league baseball. And you also co-wrote the biography of Handsome Ransom Jackson. We've still got a fantastic interview with Randy Jackson in our library, if any of you listeners haven't heard it. Uh, Galen, why are you so in love with these baseball stories, especially from the 40s and the 50s? Well, there, there was a poet. His name doesn't come readily to mind right now, but I remember the line from the, one of his poems, that death steals everything except our stories. I grew up on the West Coast, and I saw some great players come through the Coast League teams, like Steve Bilko with the Los Angeles Angels. Ransom Jackson played briefly with the Los Angeles Angels. Artie, of course, played with several teams in the Coast Leagues. So I saw these guys play, and and in Ransom's case, of course, he went on to become a two-time National League All-Star. Bilko played around 10 years in the big leagues, but never had the success in the majors that he had in the minors. And, of course, Artie had a cup of coffee in the majors, and we never got to see the true brilliance of Artie Wilson in the majors. I was fascinated with these guys, and I kind of wanted to bring their stories to life. In fact, uh, my next book will be on several minor league players, uh, several guys from the Coast League who didn't get uh, to spend much time in the big leagues. And that book is going to be left on base in the bushes. I, I was fascinated with these guys and this this difference between stardom at one level and then uh, not making it at another level. Or if you made it, you were on the bench. So I was always fascinated by that. And in Artie's case, when I first approached him, it was because of his Coast League career. But then I find out about this brilliant Negro League career. And I did, I'm glad I did. You know, the first time he faced Satchel Page, he hit a double. And the story goes that uh, uh, Satchel walked back to second base where he was and said, you might as well sit down. I heard a lot about you, young buck. You might as well sit down because you're not going anywhere. And he proceeded to strike out the next three players. Artie was full of these kind of stories about the Negro Leagues. And so once I got to spend time with him, and I spent on three different occasions, I spent time with him in Portland, Oregon, where he lived for 55 years, beginning in 1975. I was there again in 1994 during the the long baseball player strike. 95, it was still going on. So I got to spend time with Artie at different intersections of his life and uh, got to pick his brain on all these issues. And it was an honor for me. And these stories were so great that when the publisher, Roman and Littlefield, contacted me and said, we're starting a series of books on pioneers in sports, wanted to know if you had anybody that you thought might fit that description. They defined what they considered to be a pioneer in sports. And I said, well, that's Artie Wilson. So writing about Artie Wilson and in in the book, we also cover one of his teammates, Reverend Bill Greason, who was the first black to pitch for the St. Louis Cardinal. We spent a little bit of time talking about Dave Hoskins, who was a great black pitcher for the Dallas Eagles and the Texas league and sort of saved the league when he was in it. We wanted to bring some attention to some of these pioneers, these black pioneers who are, or who are often overlooked, taking nothing away from Jackie Robinson. He paved the way for all the other black players. But there were many others who in many other cities in the U.S. broke the color barrier. And that's why we did the book. When you were talking before about the Negro League players and he really always wanted a chance to see Josh Gibson, that was the one big regret that he had. 
Who are some of those other Negro League players that uh, maybe already discussed with you over the your interviews with him during the years, or or some of the ones that maybe uh, lesser known ones that we ha- that haven't been brought to light? Well, there was a pitcher named Porter Moss that he mentioned on several occasions. Porter Moss was a great knuckleballer. One of the things when Artie went in organized baseball, he heard uh, people question whether or not he could hit the uh, white pitchers. And Artie thought to himself, he said, if I can hit Satchel Paige and I can hit Porter Moss and I can hit some of these uh, other great pitchers in Negro League, why can't I hit these guys, uh, these, these white guys? And of course he was right. He could hit them all. He also talked a lot about double duty Radcliffe. Double Duty, uh, of course, was a great Negro League player. Got the nickname Double Duty because he would uh, catch the first game of a double hitter and pitch the second. Uh, so he played with uh, Double Duty. Another player, uh, Alonzo Perry, a teammate in Birmingham. Uh, not well known, but Alonzo Perry was a great player in the Mexican League and in Puerto Rico. Uh, Alonzo, he actually got Alonzo to come out and play briefly for the Oaks in uh, 1949. In fact, Artie was the first black to play for the Oaks. By the end of the season, Alonzo Perry was with the Oaks as well as an infielder named Parnell Woods. So Artie helped blaze the trail for a lot of different black players in white baseball. Piper Davis, who was his teammate in the Birmingham Industrial League, and then of course again with the Black Barons. When Artie went up to be with the Giants in 1951, he recommended to the Oaks that they bring in Piper Davis. And Piper, of course, uh, went out to Oakland. Uh, he wound up having a great career in the Coast League. He was on that 56 Angels team with Steve Bilko, uh, hit 316 as a pinch hitter, played all nine positions uh, on one occasion. So Piper Davis had a great career in organized baseball and, of course, introduced to it by, by Artie. Are you ready to write a book about our, our Astros beating the Dodgers in the World Series this past year? <laughs> I enjoyed that. Uh, the Astros have a great team. I like the way that they play. I like Altuve. I love his enthusiasm. In fact, if I were to compare uh, one of uh, modern-day players with Artie Wilson uh, in terms of enthusiasm, it would be Altuve. The other person that I would uh, probably uh, mention in regards to what Artie was like would have been Ichiro Suzuki. Ichiro was a left-handed hitter like Artie. And, and always running when he hit the ball. Artie was the same way. He was moving when he hit the ball. So fans kind of remember uh, watching Ichiro hit or seeing Altuve uh, uh, and his enthusiasm for the game. Well, you got a pretty good snapshot of Artie Wilson. Well, we can't tell you how much we enjoy this book, Singles and Smiles, How Artie Wilson Broke Baseball's Color Barrier. Galen, you told us that people wanting to purchase the book can save 30% on it. They can visit roman.com it's r-o-w-m-a-n.com call or call 1-800-462-6420 or you can even email to the address orders at roman.com the discount code is r-l-f-a-n-d-f-30 they the easy way to remember the discount code i, I figured this one out guys is rl uh, fan like uh you're a robert land fan that's me and uh who isn't a fan of me and then df30 which stands for don't forget 30 percent off uh did i get all that right galen <laughs> that's brilliant that's the best way i've heard i, I hate promotional codes because I, i'm always having to stop and say something like d is in dog but you got through all of that without any of that you connected it with robert land 
you got Don't Forget 30. That's brilliant. I wish I had that ability. Robert Land fan, Don't Forget 30. And I'm- or maybe Rich Little fan if you want like, entertainment impersonations. I don't know. Sir. I prefer Robert Land. That's... <laughs> I'm gonna put but, all the, uh, I'm gonna put it all in the show description to make it easy for everybody, and we'll have it on our main website, uh, HoustonSportsTalk.net. And uh, Galen, I, I always enjoy reading your books. It, it's it's really a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, any, any last words for us or anybody that's interested in the book? Well, when I approached Artie Wilson, it was as I approached so many of the players I interviewed over years as uh, somebody who's I was interested in, but he was just another subject. He wasn't uh, necessarily someone special. At the end, he was someone very special. He was like a brother. I always remember uh, attended church with Artie on two different occasions. The last time, Artie uh, was sitting in the front, and I was more towards the middle. I was the only white person in the congregation. Artie came back at a certain point in the service to stand next to me. And uh, when he did so, he got the attention of the pastor, and he introduced me, and he introduced me as his brother. And that's very, very special to me because Artie Wilson, I felt this uh, special compassion for. I felt that his story should be known by more people. And so I think through this book, I'm hoping that more people know about Artie Wilson and also know how how you can handle some of the difficult situations that he did at this time. You can do so with a smile and a respect for your fellow man. Beautiful words to end on, singles and smiles, how Artie Wilson broke baseball's color barrier. Thanks so much for doing this, Galen. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks again for listening. And if you're new to the show, subscribe to Houston Sports Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, or the TuneIn app. If you have an Android device, download our free Houston Sports Talk app. You can keep up with this show and my daily Locked On Texans podcast on Twitter and Facebook or by going to HoustonSportsTalk.net or LockedOnTexans.com.